Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Education Editor Helen MacDonald, and today we're talking about the physical examination. You may have spent hours practicing for your examination exams, but how evidence-based are the techniques that we're taught? To find out, the BMJ commissioned an article on the physical examination of the cardiovascular system. And earlier, I talked to one of the authors of that article, Andrew Elder, a professor at the University of Edinburgh. As an aside, we went off on a tangent about likelihood ratios. These are useful for understanding the relative use of tests in different clinical settings. So if you're a geek like me and you'd like to listen to more about diagnostic accuracy, we've put that up as a separate podcast. But firstly, here's Andrew Elder on the cardiovascular examination. Evidence-based medicine is quite a quite a young concept in terms of the data that the BMJ must have asked you to go away and find but aspects of these examinations that you describe in the piece predate that by centuries probably (laughs) um how how do you start to unpick such a huge mass not only of evidence but also just of history there are lots of papers that talk about early observation of physical signs. It is amazing that uh, clinicians who didn't have recourse to echocardiography uh, were able to describe so many of the signs, let's say, of mitral stenosis so accurately when they were really basically making um, clinical pathological correlations, post-mortem correlations with the findings that they they documented uh, earlier. So, so that literature is all there, um, but we couldn't include that in a review like this, in which we were tasked with describing the, you know, the, the value and therefore the, the, the diagnostic accuracy of, of, of signs. I, I should say that we were greatly helped in, in undertaking this by the two major existing works that there are, the uh, JAMA Journal of American Medical Association's long-running Series, which is called the Rational Clinical Examination, but also, and you know, you know, really exceptionally, is the the work of Stephen McGee from Seattle, whose book uh, Evidence-Based Physical Diagnosis goes through physical examination system by system and collates uh, the evidence. And uh, actually, without that resource, we would have found this. Uh, uh, paper much much more difficult to compile. So in this paper you've taken some really interesting questions. In a way you've you've almost done um, multiple little research papers in themselves or summarised them for us because you've taken such a variety of these um, commonly done tests. Just give us a flavour of the type of questions that you've tried to address in the paper. As I've as I've said a moment ago there, to, to make a, what people might regard as an evidence-based comparison, we had to base uh, the comparison on statistical calculations of uh, diagnostic accuracy. And as I've said, we use likelihood ratios for that. Um, but we stress at several points through the paper that one cannot use those parameters alone truly compare the value of the different components of the physical exam, partly because uh, for some uh, physical signs that everybody would regard as helpful, let's say a pericardial rub, there's absolutely no 
evidence at all. Nobody's ever studied it. Uh, but that's a patognomic sign. As I say, it would be hard to dispute its value. So that's one right away, one area where um, a, a valuable physical sign uh, doesn't have evidence and therefore can't be included in a comparison. But the the um, I, you, you may wish to ask me about methodology. In, yes, in the, I mean, the... just looking at running down the the table of signs that you looked at, I'd, perhaps I'll just give um, listeners a sense of the things you covered. You said um, palpation of the pulse was one thing. So looking at the rate, the rhythm, the volume, the character, um, bruise, symmetry between sides. You looked at um, measurements of arterial pressure, so blood pressure. You thought about um, JVP examination and then moving down onto examination of the chest. You looked at scars, movements, palpation of the chest, percussion of the chest, auscultation of the chest, particularly for heart sounds, murmurs and pericardial rub. And then other general signs like cyanosis, like clubbing, like edema. Were there any other tests where there was just no evidence at all? It, 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 you just couldn't include it because there wasn't the data to, to consider. One area where there is a shortage uh, of evidence to enable one to express value in terms of diagnostic accuracy is what remains a very common condition in many parts of the world out with the UK and the USA, and that's rheumatic and mitral stenosis. Uh, many medical students will remember the descriptions of the classic physical findings in mitral stenosis, opening snap, etc., mid-diastolic murmur. But um, although um, the, the basis of these signs is very clearly described in the literature, because the condition's not prevalent anymore in, in the UK or the USA in particular, where most of these studies are done, uh, there's, there's no literature to describe the relative diagnostic mm. value. And one of the one of the things we say in, in, in you know perhaps ideas for future research is to look at conditions that are are prevalent in other parts of the world and the the value of the, the physical findings in them. So thinking about the conditions or the signs um, where there were some data available and you could start to characterise um, some likelihood ratios which might be of help. Where were the data quite convincing? Where did you actually find evidence that um, cardiovascular signs were useful for diagnosis? Okay, well, as, as I said, we, we started with no assumptions. We looked at everything that any medical student would remember as being a part of the cardiovascular exam, compiled it into one large table, and then we tried to pick out uh, those areas of the physical exam where statistically there was the strongest evidence of value um, from, from the available uh, evidence. And we also used our own uh, diverse clinical experience and background to try and, and emphasise the, the, those parts that we felt from our clinical experience most valuable. So I guess the, the ones that we, we uh, stress in the paper as important are things like using the jugular venous pulse, as an estimation of uh, central venous pressure, uh, the opportunistic detection of abdominal aortic aneurysm and atrial fibrillation through examination of the abdomen and palpation of the pulse, respectively, um, uh, features of peripheral vascular disease, uh, supporting the presence of, of, of such disease in patients with suggestive uh, symptoms,
symptoms. What features um, were they? Um, they? They were, um, so if you take a patient, for example, with the claudication, if you can detect a palpable pulse abnormality uh, or a lower limb brewery, then that's got a likelihood ratio of, of approximately five, what we were just talking about. And so it increases the probability that your patient has peripheral vascular disease by about 30%. So that's, that seemed to us to be uh, important in clinical practice. We felt that um, the evidence surrounding heart failure was all quite convincing, uh, that you know the presence of an elevated JVP increases the likelihood that a patient will have um, uh, heart failure, that the presence of a third sound not only makes it more likely your patient's got heart failure, but implies a poorer prognosis. And there's lots of evidence too, and we have quite a lot in the paper about um, about murmurs, uh, both hmm. in, in uh, clinicians being able to distinguish between what's likely to be a pathological or a functional murmur through physical examination. And then even beyond that, that you, you know, Skilled and practice physicians can uh, quite, quite, you know, competently differentiate between different forms of valvular heart disease through uh, physical examination. Excellent. And where did you find evidence that the tests were less useful? Which, which tests had poor predictive value? I, I think I, I would stress in, in answering that question that uh, absence of evidence of value is not the same as evidence of absence of value. That there are many areas of the physical exam where there just it just has not been studied. Mm. Yeah. So in um, most I, areas where there was evidence, you found evidence that it was helpful, um, so that you you weren't sort of strongly struck that actually for some areas there was reasonable evidence that it wasn't helpful. It was mostly that there was an it, absence it, of evidence. Yeah, it's that, it's that you cannot um, describe value in the way that an evidence-based medicine practitioner would wish you to describe value from the available evidence. But, you, know, you know, if you take something like pulsus paradoxus, the observation of a fall in uh, systemic arterial blood pressure uh, on inspiration, mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it, imagine a patient presenting to the front door of a hospital with breathlessness uh, and the first doctor to see them happens to notice that every time the patient breathes in, the, their blood pressure falls. There's, there's no data to tell you how valuable that is, but that would make that doctor, if they knew about pulses paradoxes, consider the possibility that the patient had uh, a pericardial effusion, pericardial tamponade, which can sometimes be... Uh, a diagnosis is difficult to make, but I don't think anybody would dispute, and certainly the patient, I don't think would dispute the value of the doctor being able to 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 consider that diagnosis through that uh, single uh, observation. So, uh, in general, where where there is evidence, it supports in general the use of physical examination. Uh, and the other tests that we're all familiar with, there really isn't evidence to conclude one way or another. Mm, interesting. So is there anything having had the, I don't know whether it feels like you had the benefit of doing this or whether it was a, it was an enormous and arduous task, but um, is there anything that you've changed about how you practice as a result of having looked at all this? Um, I, I think that it's been interesting for all of us to do it. I think that 
um, one, I, 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 I would talk about the juggler Venus pressure, I think, uh, as something I think many people um, are taught it at medical school, but find it all rather intimidating. Mm-hmm. And looking at the evidence that I've seen, I think I've ended up feeling, well, this is uh, a valuable physical sign. It is one that uh, it is important to master. Uh, and I've ended up feeling that the way we actually teach it is overcomplicated. Mm-hmm. And we we express in the paper what we felt was hopefully the simplest way of saying what an abnormal JVP is. And we also um, show the evidence that things like having to use the right internal jugular vein isn't necessarily the case. So give me give this. me your top tips as a as a GP. I can't imagine that we're particularly renowned for um, <sighs> assessing JVPs. S- see if you can well, convert well, me in a in two sentences to to taking a good JVP. What should I do? D- d- don't feel you necessarily have to position the patient precisely at forty five degrees. Mm-hmm. Have a look at them sitting in a chair in front of you, and if you can see a pulsation in the neck that you are comfortable with venous not arterial, and that usually means that it's undulating or flickering and not a single pulse. There are other things you can do to distinguish between the two. But if you can see uh, what you believe to be a venous pulse in the neck and it's more than three centimetres above the uh, sternal angle, then that has a, some, a likelihood ratio of about 10, as I recall, for the patient having an elevated central venous pressure. Now, that has to be, if one can master that, an important uh, clinical observation. What what does this mean for other types of examination? Well, I think that the physical examination has fallen a little bit into dis- disrepute in recent years, and we need to, we believe, re-emphasize that physical examination is important, first and foremost, because it takes the doctor to the patient's bedside. Uh, secondly, physical examination is immediately available. It's rapid and repeatable. It's relatively inexpensive, and it's safe and non-invasive. The paper we've written shows that there's substantial evidence to support its diagnostic value in a range of contexts, and listeners can look for evidence uh, in Stephen McGee's book in particular of evidence pertaining to other systems. The final thing we would all want to stress as authors is that there's clear evidence that if you do not do physical examination as a clinician, you will make mistakes, you will misdirect referrals, you will mismanage some patients, and you'll misdiagnose some patients. So we strongly believe that the evidence in this paper and evidence from other similar papers relating to other systems all emphasise the importance of the physical exam in modern practice. You've been listening to Andrew Elder talk about diagnostic usefulness of the cardiovascular examination. If you're interested in reading more, the article, How Valuable is Physical Examination of the Cardiovascular System?, is now available on thebmj.com. And, as I said at the beginning, if you want to geek out on some stats, have a listen to the other podcast we recorded about likelihood ratios. The link is in the text of wherever you got this. And if you like this podcast, you can find more on our SoundCloud page or in iTunes, or just search for The BMJ. Thanks for listening. <laughs>